Friends, we are going to preach from God's Word today. If you've got a Bible, please open up to Ephesians chapter 2. There's a text that will stand over our sermon, though today's message will be a bit more of a, a, a everywhere kind of sermon as I try and establish a doctrine for us. But we will start in Ephesians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, put your hand up. We'd love to give you a physical copy, uh, and David will get you one. I think down here, put the hand back up. We see that hand. That's the only time we do hands at our church. All right, let me read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are are being built together, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Upcoming in our family life is a wedding. Maddie's sister, Phoebe, is getting married to Harry. And we we couldn't be more excited. We love Harry. Uh, He's awesome. And so it's one of those weddings where it's not like, oh, it's like, yes, finally, this is great. Uh, We love Phoebe. We love Harry. Uh, And as we look forward to welcoming him into the family, the kids have been getting to know him. And they've started calling him this this title, Almost Uncle Harry. (laughs) And I, I want to correct him. I'm like, no, he's Uncle Harry. But in a sense, they're right. He, you know, until they get married, uh, he's almost Uncle Harry. We love him. He's awesome. But until that day when they're bound together, he's not part of the family yet. And one of my favorite moments in every wedding is when you come to the reception and the father of the bride and the father of the groom stand up with so much love and joy for their son or daughter and they turn to the spouse And they welcome the spouse into their family. And they say something along the lines of, you know, today I haven't lost a daughter, I've gained a son. That's a beautiful moment, especially when you know that family and how tight and how loving and how beautiful that expression is. Regularly, as a church, we have a new members Sunday. And on those Sundays, we get up all the new members and they share their story, who they are, And we welcome them to join our church as members. And often we'll say something like, they are now part of our church family. We're family together. But in what sense is our church a family in comparison to our natural families? It's easy to think of when the dad, when Tim, Maddie's dad, will say to Harry, I welcome you as a son into our family. We get that. That makes sense. We know what goes along with that. But when we say welcome to a church family, what does that actually mean? It's become actually really common to throw around the word family, and it's almost robbed of all meaning. Um, The youth say things like, you know, fam-bam, 
I don't even know what that is. Phoebe, actually, who's getting married, often texts out to her friends and things and says, hey, fam. Like, they're not their family, it's just your friends. So I don't know what she means, but she's using this word. Schools talk about their school as a school family. Sporting clubs. Welcome to the, the Winston Hills Athletics family. Even companies are using the family language. Uh, companies will, maybe when you're inducted into your latest company you work for, they said, you're now part of the family. And you're like, oh, I'm just a checkout chick. I don't really feel like <laughs> part of the family. If you go to Ikea, I mean, you can, you can just join straight away. You don't have to do anything. You can become part of Ikea family. And you get a little card and it tracks all your purchases and you, get, you can return anything. If you buy something at Ikea, do you know this? You can return it, no questions asked, within one or two years. Now, that's family. But... <laughs> But really, like, is it family? What does that word even mean? I came across an article on TED.com by PhD David Burke, and the, the article was entitled, Why a Company is Not a Family, and How Companies Can Bond with Their Employees Instead. He says this, A company is not a family, and what's more, a company should not try to be a family. When companies overuse the word family, the results are rarely positive. Indeed, pushing for family levels of commitment can actually do damage to company culture and morale. He continues to say, most employees don't want to be a part of another family. Instead, they want to be part of a team that is bonded by a common purpose and built on trust and respect. This begs the question, I think. When we think of our church and call our church a family, have we got caught up in this overused and even harmful metaphor? Are we calling our church family in order to make it feel more intimate and make it feel more special and make it feel more close than it really is? Are we really a family as a church? The mission statement of our church is that we want to be a church which is passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But at the beginning of that statement, there's a sentence that goes before that and says, we exist to build a community of believers who are passionate about that. So our mission statement of our church has this word community, but is our community a family? Well, today, that's what we're going to discover. And today, we're going to dig into our Bibles and, and investigate whether our church is really family or we're just bought into this overuse of the word to try and make it feel more special. There's only two points for today, um, but I won't tell you what they are because really it's just investigation and application. We're going to investigate whether or not our church is a family and then we're going to apply what we find in the Bible. And we're going to run through like a lot of theological stuff. Hopefully it'll be clear and logical, but I want to try and get a lot done in a short amount of time. So I hope you're ready to love God with all your mind right now and figure out, point number one, is the church a family? Is the church a family? When we think about church and that word, we can have a whole lot of different and wrong ideas about what a church is. Firstly, the word doesn't help us. The word church is derived from the ancient English expression kirk, which is derived from the Greek expression kyrios and oikos. Kyrios means Lord, oikos means home, house of the Lord, or the gathering place of worship. 
So the, the, the English word church denotes a building. It literally does mean a building. It means where you gather to worship God, the house of the Lord. But biblically defined, church is more than that. Another way we can be wrongly thinking about church is that it's like a business or a brand. Um, as our world has become more and more commercial and more and more professional, so the church has become more and more commercial and more and more professional. Churches can feel like we're marketing, we're doing branding, we're running services. It's a consumer product that you receive, and if you don't like it, you try a different brand. Um, if you don't like IKEA, you well, there's nothing else like IKEA, but I don't know. If you don't like McDonald's, you go to Hungry Jack's. Uh, if you don't like this church, you go to that. Um, John Piper once wrote a book, and it's a brilliant title, Brothers, We're Not Professionals. Speaking against the business culture, the church is not a business. I'm not a professional. I'm a pastor. Well, if that's not correct, well, then another way we can often think of church is it, by the denomination or institution. Sovereign Grace churches, okay, we're a denomination. So is that what a church is? It's a, it's a group or Presbyterians or Baptists or Anglicans or Catholics or Pentecostals. Well, that's, that's also not what the Bible means when it calls us church. Another wrong way of thinking about it is that it's a service or an event. What did you do today? I went to church. <laughs> now, it, what we do when we gather is really significant. But this is a worship service. This isn't the church, in a sense, can make us think that church is an event in a time slot. But the biblical idea of church is more than the event of when we gather, although the gathering is the most important event that the church does. So what is a church? Well, it's often said, you've probably heard it, church is not the building, it's the people. And that's correct. Now, the biblical word that we translate into English as church is actually a Greek word called ekklesia. And ekklesia is just a normal Greek word. It's not a special religious word. It just means a gathering or a congregation. So a riot can be an ekklesia, <laughs> and a worship service can be an ekklesia. So it's not a special term. It just means a gathering of people. But behind that term becomes a whole theological concept that the church is a people. But not just a people. That doesn't fully solve the problem. Oh, the church is not a building, it's people. Well, it's not just any old people. It's not just human beings in the same place at the same time. No, the church is not just a people, it's his people. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says this about Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, since the Garden of Eden, God's plan in all of creation is to gather for himself a people. And not just a people, his people. That's why he called Abraham and said, you'll be a father of many nations. And from Abraham came Moses, and Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery. And then what did God do? He gathered them at Sinai as the Greek, 
You know, the Greek New Old Testament uses the word ecclesia, church, to call the people of Israel as they gather at Sinai. That's the church. And so God wanted his people not to be in slavery, but he wanted his people to be out so they could be his people, not under the rule of Pharaoh. They enter the land and God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then Jesus comes along and what does Jesus do? He doesn't become like a guru, doesn't teach a worldview like Jordan Peterson. No, he gathers a people. He calls 12 men, says, follow me. Expands to about 144. And then on the day of Pentecost, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They go out, obeying the Lord's command to make disciples. And those people become a huge gathering. On the day of Pentecost, thousands added. And it says in Acts that the Lord added to their number. So the church didn't just grow because of this marketing strategy, the, you know, the disciples to use the gift of tongues to preach the gospel. It's not like, oh, that's what we should do. <laughs> no, the Lord added his people. He added to their number. And what did they do? Well, they gathered in the temple and then they gathered into homes to worship. As Paul and Barnabas went out some 30 years later to preach the gospel all over the Roman world, whoever was converted was brought into a gathering of people, a local church. And the final image in the Bible, in Revelation, is a great throng of people, not just any old people, but his people, the redeemed of God, worshipping God and praising him. Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So that word church means a people, but not just any old people, his people. God's plan in history is to gather his people into one final church gathering in heaven forever and between now and then in millions of church gatherings around the world. But even that, it's, it's even more than that. It's not just his people. Like as if he's gathering members of a political party. The state election's coming up. You could become a member of the Liberal Party. You, you don't have to just vote. You can become a member or the Labor Party or the Greens Party. And you're part of the Liberal Party. That's, that's not what he's done. He's not just gathering people on his team. No, his people are his blood-bought people. The church is not just people that have decided, oh yeah, I guess I'll follow Jesus and, and join a church. I was born into the church and I will die in the church. It's not like that. No, the church is the blood-bought people of God. Paul says this to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or pastors or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The church, however ordinary we might feel, are not just a people, we're his people, but not just his people, we're his blood-bought people. The eternal Son of God, in his eternal love, condescended from heaven, came to earth to shed his blood on a cross to purchase you and I to be part of his people. 
Those around you are not just people that have joined Sovereign Grace Church Parramatta. They are people who have been bought by the very blood of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. You stand among blood-bought people, precious people to the Saviour. So the church is not a building, a business, a brand, an event, or a service. It's a people, his people, that he bought with his blood. And he bought them, he bought them with his blood so that they'd not just be merely free, but so that he could make them his very own. So that he could make them part of his very own family. This is the gift of adoption. Listen to Galatians chapter 4. So we're not just people. We're adopted into God's family. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What happens when you become a Christian? It's like at that wedding speech. God stands up, delivers his speech and says to you and I, Scott, welcome to my family. John, welcome to my family. Sammy, welcome to my family, says the Lord to you. We're not just saved, we are adopted. And adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. It's so great to have our sins forgiven. It's so great not to be going to hell. It's so great that we get to go to heaven. But imagine in heaven, if we got there, we were distant from God. And he was somewhere else. And yeah, okay, we didn't have sin. We didn't have any problems. But we didn't actually have God. But no, adoption means that we now have God as our very own heavenly father. You're his son. You're his daughter daughter. Not just in general, like, yeah, Christians are children of God, plural. In the singular, you yourself, if you are in Christ, are his adopted son or daughter. You are an heir of life. You will co-inherit the kingdom with Christ. Not just like the super religious ones or the really good Christians. You, me, in all of my sin. But with this privileged status comes a new reality. We're not only children. We're not a single child family. God's new family, adopted family, is you're adopted into an ever-expanding and very large historic family made up of many children, men and women, boys and girls, old and young, rich and poor, from every tribe, language and tongue, from east to west. The family of God is global and historic. Christianity, the church, is not Jesus and me. It's Jesus and we. The church, biblically defined, is made up of all saints, past and present, under both covenants, old and new. That means in your family, you are spiritually related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Joshua, and Ruth, David, and Bathsheba. 
Solomon, Elijah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, as well as Peter, James and John, Thomas the Doubter, Mary Magdalene, the Apostle Paul, Augustine, Athanasius, Luther, Calvin, Cramner and Spurgeon, Amy Carmichael, Corrie ten Boom, Billy Graham, Elizabeth Elliot, John Stott, John Piper. What a global, historic and epic family we belong to. But scripture drives us even deeper into the metaphor of family. It's not just a global, historic church. The church is also local. And our little church here in Parramatta is itself conceived of biblically as a family. It's not a subfamily or part of a family, but it itself is called the household of God. Or you could translate that, the family of God. That was the text we read at the beginning, Ephesians 2. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's adoption. Notice the, the familial language. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens. That's a nice image, citizenry, but it can be a bit distant or you know, out there. So then he makes it really personal. And members of the household of God. You are members of God's household. Our church is called, in various places in Scripture, the household of God. So, what's a church? When we talk about church and this community, well, it's a people. It's not just any old people. It's his people. It's not just his people. It's his blood-bought people. It's not just his blood-bought people who are saved. It's his blood-bought people who are adopted, who are his sons and daughters, who he gathers into the historic, global, universal church through all ages. But then God gathers them into small, little local churches to be little expressions of families of God. We, friends, are family. It's not just a cute saying it's a biblical reality. The New Testament is replete with the language of family. If you pay attention, it's everywhere. There's many different analogies in the Bible for what the church is. The church is the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's the temple of God. It's the building of God. It's the flock of God. And it's also the family. And the family is one of the most dominant images of church. And I'm just going to read to you a lot of scriptures just to baptize you into the family language. Jesus, when he was questioned by his, mother's and, by his mother and brother as to like, what are you doing? Going around healing and preaching and teaching. He answered them and said, who are my mother and my brothers? Mark chapter 3. And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven. John 19. While Christ hung on the cross, paying for your sin and my sin, he created a new family. When Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, the Apostle John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He didn't point. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He creates a new family because they are spiritual family. When the apostles address a church in the New Testament epistles, what is the term they most frequently use? Brothers or brothers and sisters, Adelphoi. Romans 16, he commends Phoebe, our sister. 1 Peter 5, Silvanus, our faithful brother. In fact, if you look, you'll notice that there nowhere in any of the epistles after the book of Acts is the word disciple used. Only brother, sister. It's like the term disciple got subsumed into the greater reality, not just a school with a master and pupils, but a family. And so the church is a family, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon in 1 Timothy, but I'm writing these things so that, to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church, in the family of God. Church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Then he goes on to say, look at the family language. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. 1 Corinthians 4.15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Romans 16.13, greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. So Paul sees himself as the father of the Corinthian church. But Rufus's mom in Rome, well, that's his mom, spiritually. And Timothy, my true child in the faith. We could continue. But it's, under, it's important we understand the familial language in the New Testament. But this language is actually only reserved for the church and Christians. It's become commonplace to say all people on earth are the children of God. They're not. All people on earth are creatures of God, but not everyone is a child of God. The language of child of God is special, precious language only applied to those whom he bought with his blood. In a sense, God's the father of all creation. But biblically speaking, only his blood-bought people are his children. And so that's why we practice membership as a church. That's why we define ourselves as a local expression and say there are some who aren't Christians and there's some who are because we're saying there are some who are in the family of God and there's some who aren't in the family of God. And our church, our membership is made up of only those who we can credibly confess are part of the family of God. So when we look around at church and we think about our local church, we think these are adopted sons and daughters of the king. If we were just a business, though, we could include everyone. But no, we're a church. We're a household of God. And so we've got to keep that language just for the church. That's why communion is only for believers. It's the family meal. Now, a clarification. 
This does not mean that the natural family is obliterated or replaced by the church. No. Jesus really meant for John to take his mother Mary into her home. The natural family is still hugely important and it's upheld with all its beauty and obligations. For instance, widows who wanted to seek help were not meant to get help by the church if they had natural family. Look at 1 Timothy 5. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So the the family still exists. It still has its obligations. We're still meant to care for our natural families. It's not church family or natural family. It's both. (laughs) But what we do is we add to our natural family, our church family. And so we increase and add rather than subtract. And we have a special duty to our church family. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, like Jamie and Joel fostering. Let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we have a duty to all mankind, but especially to our church. But that doesn't replace our duty to our family. So you've got to hold all the tensions there. So there's a lot right there. Okay, but I hope you've been encouraged to see when we're saved by Jesus, we're welcomed into a family, his family. We're part of the universal church of God throughout the ages, and we're part of a local church of God, a local family. And it's not just any old people gathering, it's the blood-bought people of God that Jesus sacrificed his life for. So when we say church is family, it's not like Ikea family. It's God's family. And look around. For those who you know are genuine Christians, are eternal sons and daughters of God, and you will be family with them forever, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I often think about that. I was on a plane um, flying from, back from the US last week or the week before, and I sat next to a Christian, and I thought, this is so weird, because we're going to be in heaven forever together and we sat next to each other for 15 hours and had pleasant conversation encouraged one another but like I will see her in heaven forever and she's my sister in Christ and it's a weird reality but this is what we're brought into if we're truly in Christ and I want to speak to you if you are not sure if you're in the family of God if you're not sure that you could say God is my father these are my Christian brothers and sisters then guess what You don't have to earn your way in. You don't have to suck up like a good son-in-law might do. You, through putting your faith in Jesus Christ right now, are fully welcomed into the family of God and would be fully welcomed into this church family as a son and daughter. And so I commend you, if you're not yet family, if you're not sure, if you're not sure that God would say, my son, when he judges you, then you better be sure. And you come to Christ now and receive the gift of adoption. So that's point one. Is church a family? Yes. Secondly, point two. What I want for us as a church is to live in community as a family. So our church exists to build a community of believers. And that community of believers, I want us to live as a family together. My hope for this sermon is that you'll see that our local church really is a family. 
and that you'll desire to play your part. And one of the joys of being a pastor of this local church is we are family. And there's so much of what the New Testament says of what a church is meant to do and be like that we live out so well. And it's a joy to be a part of this family. The family metaphor is a helpful model for what it looks like to be in the church. That's why God used it. So we look at our earthly families and think in their functional state, (laughs) that's sort of a picture of what our church family is meant to look like. So I'm going to use the model of the earthly family to try and give us some application points as to what does this mean for us if we're a church family. So firstly, and there's seven of them, we'll see how I go quickly. Firstly, we gather. Just like families who are truly functional gather for regular meals, if not daily meals, and then as the extended family for special events, birthdays and Christmas, they gather to feast and to celebrate. They gather to mourn at weddings and... Oh, no, at funerals. (laughs) Well, it depends. So we too, as a church, as a family, we must gather. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not to neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have a responsibility as a church family to gather weekly for our worship service. We also love to gather as a church in smaller groups in our life groups. It's a chance for the church family to feel even more like a family where it's, it's 10 to 15 people and their kids and, and you know what's really going on. And so if we want to be a church family, we have to be at the gatherings regularly. We have to be at the life groups and the growth groups. We've got to commit to it. So are you making the gathering of your family a priority? I don't know if you've got someone in your family that just never comes to the family gathering. Over time, that person feels less and less like family, don't they? That's the same with church. Secondly, we give. Family life is costly and sacrificial. I feel like I'm constantly (laughs) giving to my kids, sacrificing for my kids and my extended family, buying food, presents, toys, gifts, paying bills, helping, supporting, doing all that we can to help our families get by. And so too as a church. Friends, it costs more to be a Christian. Because not only do you have all the duties and responsibilities you have to your immediate families and your natural families, add to that now your local church family as well. Richie's sermon last week on this was great about serving. Looking to Christ first and then looking how can we serve one another. We've got to give of ourselves to one another if we're going to really operate like a family. It means giving of our time, like we just said in the gathering. Giving of our talents, using our gifts to serve. Giving of our treasures. Every family requires financial burdens to be spread amongst all the members of the family. Especially in cross-cultural families, I know that you know, people work here and send money back home to support their parents. We're not as used, I'm not as used to that in my nature and culture, but I think that's a beautiful thing. Taking responsibility for one another. That's what the church does. 
When we all play our part financially, we can go forward as a church and do amazing things. But we all need to play our part. We all need to give of our money. I mean, I don't know if you've got anyone in your family that just turns up to every family event and never brings, never cooks, never cleans, and you're like, oh man, you're still family, but you're an annoying family member. (laughs) Don't be that family member here at church. If you come along and you're not giving and you're not serving, I mean, people are making you coffee for free. There's aircon. It doesn't come for free. All the things we do, all the mission we give to is on the back of the generosity of this church family. And so you're missing out on being a part of the family. And so I commend you, if you're not playing your part generously and sacrificially, play your part like you would in your own church, in your own heavenly, earthly family. Sorry, I got there. Okay. Third, so we, we gather, we give. Thirdly, as a family, we also receive. We need our families. We need our families for support, for babysitting, for financial help at times. And sometimes you just want to call your mum, don't you? Or your brother or your sister. And the church family's the same. The church is not a place of superheroes where we come together and declare, how great you are, Lord, and I've got my life all together, and now I go out as a Christian soldier into the world completely self-content and self-sufficient. No, the church is made up of broken and weak people like me, and I need help and you need help. And so as a family, we need to also be humble enough to receive help. We need each other. We need Jesus, yes, but we need people to be Jesus to us. The way God, and I think one of Richie or Joel, someone preached in their sermon, the way God acts in this world is through you and I being God to them. The way God provides for your financial needs often is through someone else in the church providing or your emotional needs or your spiritual needs or whatever it is, physical needs, like a whole bunch of guys lifted dirt and laid lawn for the pettits yesterday. We need help. And we are a church which gives and receives so well. This is a strength that we must not neglect and continue to go forward in. I love seeing this church rally. I think everything that Joel and Jamie needed for their newborn was delivered within a day. It's like, every, okay, it's done. Okay, what's next? Okay, that's who we are as a family. And the fact that they asked and people asked for help, that's a sign of a healthy family. That we're not pretending like, oh, I've got it all together. Yes, I'm at church again. No, you don't. Uh, and no one does. And if you think anyone here has it together, you're mistaken. Uh, we all need one another. And so in humility, as a family, just fess up and ask for help. <laughs> and so an application point for you today might be to ask for help, to receive help from others and to lay down your burdens and just receive. Maybe you need to come up for ministry prayer at the end. Maybe you've had something nagging on you for weeks and weeks or even months but you're too proud or too embarrassed to actually just put your hand up and say, I just need help in this. And you miss out. You miss out because God wants to move in your life and bless you through his Holy Spirit and through his people. And so ask. Okay. I'll have to share the other ones another time, but very briefly, we submit. Every family has fathers who rule the family and lead the family. The church has leaders 
We submit to those leaders. We watch out for one another. Number five, we're, we're there in a good family. Like the kids are looking out for each other. They're not just like, oh, I don't care that my sister's on the road. Too bad. It's like, no, a brother, a good brother is going to run and grab their sister and be like, you're on the road. And that might have happened just yesterday in my own life. <laughs> Except it wasn't my son that got my daughter. It was Alana from across the road delivering Zoe. Said so she's in the gutter and I was inside. So don't be like that. We need to watch out for one another. I can't watch over every life. My job as a pastor is to oversee, okay, what's going on, trying as best as I can. But I need you to come with me. If you see someone drifting off, if you see someone in error, if you think someone's going astray, it's your duty as a family to go after them in love, not just to wait for the pastor to do it or hope it comes up in a sermon. It's your duty. We're family. We prioritize, number six, We've got to make, we build our life, just like we build our lives around our earthly family, we build our lives around our church family. And finally, we invite. The church is a weird family in that we're always adding to our number. We're adding to our friendship groups. There's new people coming to our church every week. We invite people to join into our family and then we're committing to them that we're going to love them and serve them just like they were our own. Just like all the people that we've been loving for three or four years as a church. Now the new people, it's like, all right, now we do it again. And there's lots of people, lost people out there who don't have a spiritual family. And our duty as the church of God is to go out and to welcome those people in and bring them in so that they can have God as their father and you as their brother and sister. So friends, we gather, we give, we receive, we submit, we watch, we prioritize, and we invite. That's what families do. And so as a church, I want us to commit to being a family. It's our biblical identity, and it's our biblical duty, and it's our biblical privilege. I want family not to be a cliche term that we use to feel like we're intimate and small and it's like really great, we're a church family, but actually the lived reality is anything about that. No, it's up to all of us to make that reality, that theological term, a reality in our lives and you do it so well. So all I'm trying to do today is encourage you to do it all the more, to inform you from Scripture that this isn't just something we like to do because it's Sovereign Grace Paramount. It's like, it's what we like. We like being family. No, it's the biblical principle. And so now, empowered by that, go and live it out. And know that as you do it and you bear all the costs, you're doing the will of God. You're not just some hero Christian or some, you know, Poor Christian that's like, well, no one else is going to be family, so I'm going to be family to them, and I'm missing out. I could have just been selfish and got away with living my life. My No, this is God's will for you. This is God's best for us. And so, friends, I want you to gather, give, receive, submit, watch, prioritize, invite, and be the family of God together as you've already been. Let me pray that this would happen, and then we're going to sing one final song. God, I pray and ask that you would help us to be this church family. We can't do it on our own. It's too hard. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to love like this, to serve like this, to humble ourselves like this, to do all these things. 
And so, God, our Father, I ask that you would help us to be brothers and sisters to one another, fathers and mothers, uncles and aunties, to look upon each other as our dearly beloved family. Give us the grace to do it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.